Good evening and welcome to the Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists meet over a few drinks and casual conversation to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Hello, I'm Scott Sorrell, your host for tonight's conversation. Tonight, we're going to jump right into it because we have a lot to cover. My co-host for tonight is Dr. Clay Zimmerman. If you've joined us on other podcasts, you've already met Clay. But if this is your first time listening in, Clay, why don't you share a little bit of something about yourself? Uh, and since this is a virtual pub, tell us what you're drinking tonight. Sure. So um, one thing I'll share is that uh, my wife, Karen, and I were the, were the parents of five young adults. But I think that one of our guests today will, uh, will put me to shame in that category. And Scott, what I'm drinking tonight is uh, in honor of the season and a company that's actually near our headquarters in New York. I'm drinking some some hard cider this evening. There you, that is one of your favorites. I was wondering when you're going to get around to that, Clay. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Very well. All right. Thanks, Clay. Tonight, we'll continue the conversation we started with Dr. Adam Locke during his webinar titled Supplemental Fatty Acids, More Than Just Fat and Energy. Dr. Locke, your presentation generated a great deal of interest. We had over 1,000 people register for your live webinar, and over 550 people have already watched the recorded version on our YouTube channel. So thank you for joining us here again tonight at the Real Science Exchange. Thank you, Scott. It's exciting to hear that it's generated that much interest, and I look forward to continuing the discussions. You're very welcome. And um, becoming a quite a familiar face here at Real Science Exchange, you've appeared on the Real Science Lecture Series, and this is your second trip to the exchange. And since you know the drill, tell us a little bit about yourself, but more importantly, tell us something that maybe not everybody uh, in the industry knows about you. And then more importantly, uh, tell us what you're drinking tonight. Okay, yeah, no, I really appreciate being back. The last one of these we did in, in the pub uh, uh, as a follow-up to, to the Discover conference, that was a lot of fun, so looking forward to this one. As, as many of you can probably tell straight from the accent, not here from Michigan, uh, from a dairy farm in the southwest of England. My parents used to milk about 120 dairy cows, Holsteins, and uh, we, they still live on the farm now. Uh, we haven't milked now for about 20 years Um uh, my, I, I often tell people my dad is one of the only few people I, I know that still sleeps in the bedroom he was born in. So it's always ironic when I've moved uh, three states in a different country when uh, a few years ago he started trying to give me moving advice. So, uh, yeah, so we're fortunate that uh, I've always born and raised on the dairy farm. And that's really where where my passion is. Uh, something that people don't really know. Uh, my wife has a Ph.D. in nutrition as well uh, in swine nutrition. We met at graduate school. And uh, have two boys here, age twelve and twelve and nine, in uh, third grade and seventh grade. They're doing virtual school here now, so that leads it nicely onto what I'm drinking. Uh, so uh, today, I, pre I have a, a gin and tonic, a Hendrix uh, from Scotland, from Ayrshire, not far from where my sister-in-law and brother-in-law live. It's the Hendrix factory, so I have a, a very traditional uh, gin and tonic here. So. Thank you. I'll kind of get to what I'm drinking here tonight. But one thing, Adam, you may not know about me, I have more than a passing interest in the, the fat industry. I've spent a significant part of my career in the bypass fat industry. In fact, I was the very first what they call business manager for a product called Megalac, which I'm, I'm sure oh. you're aware of. And so I've got a soft spot in my heart for a gentleman uh, but I, by the name of Dr. Uh, Don Palmquist. Don, along with uh, Tom Jenkins, uh, invented um, the technology that became Megalac. And uh, we've since become uh, uh, friends. And the last time that I was together, I had a, a, a Balvini 12-year-old uh, uh, scotch with uh, Dr. Palmquist. And so tonight I'm, I'm, I'm list, uh, lifting my glass uh, in honor of Dr. Palmquist. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, I mean, both of those guys are, you know, pioneers in this area. And it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, Dr. Jenkins in particular has been a very big mentor of mine uh, ever since I moved over here to work with Dr. Bauman. Um, Dr. Jenkins being a big, uh, big mentor and a good friend of mine. So uh, I appreciate all the work that they, they've done. And actually, I had an hour call with Olac in England this morning, who are the, the first people that did that. Uh, Megalax. So uh, it's a small world here, right? Yeah, a very small world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Adam, would you mind introducing your guest and tell us a little bit about uh, him and, and your relationship? How do you come to invite him to join you here at the exchange tonight? 
Yeah, well, thank you. I, I'm really uh, pleasure to bring uh, Stacey Nichols from Viper Plus along here tonight for our discussions. I've known Stacey probably, I was trying to think back about this, when I was at Cornell as a postdoc with Dr. Bauman back in the early 2000s would have been the first time I've met Stacey and um, we've always had good discussions and it was really when I moved here to Michigan that I think uh, we really got to know each other well. Uh, you have a good good friendship, good, good collaborations. So Stacey's a technical uh, manager for, for Vita Plus um, here in the in the in the mid Midwest here, and Stacey has helped mentor I'd say nearly all of my graduate students here, either officially or unofficially. He's always been a a great um, source of advice for my graduate students, a great sounding board for me, and we bounced a lot of ideas back and forth with each other. It's helped with diets and trying to keep me relevant sometimes when I try and get a little bit too crazy with stuff. Try, tries to Hopefully he keeps me grounded in the industry, which I think is vitally important. And another big thing I have to uh, give a shout out to Stacey and to Vita Plus for is that they've helped support uh, three of my master's students here now through uh, Vita Plus Fellowship that they've run here and over in Wisconsin. And I've uh, been very fortunate that we've been able to do this partnership and I think it's been able to help advance science and also help with the training uh, future future people in the industry. And so uh, Stacey's been a big part of that. So uh, I'm glad Stacey could join us here tonight. No, we thank you for bringing him along. And, uh, you know, last we, we talked the other day and Stacy, you shared something uh, that I, I found quite interesting. And that that's how you've taken a bike riding recently. Tell us a little bit about that. I started cycling in uh, April. Uh, I was trying to trying to get in better shape and ended up with a foot injury in April and I couldn't do the intensive walking I was doing. So I started started cycling and picked up the old rally 10 speed I bought when I was 15 and uh, put some money into it and ended up at the end of the summer doing a 75 mile bike ride on it. And then first week of September, I bought a used track, well used track. Um, and for the year, I'm closing in on really close i'm really close to 1500 miles now cycling for the year so my my average bike ride is between 20 and 30 miles and i try to go three to four days a week so well that's awesome that's that's a lot more than i've ever ridden in my entire lifetime and that's been a while but i want to circle back to something clay said earlier something about uh the number of children perhaps that you might have sired do you want to comment on that <laughs> my my wife and i have eight children um <laughs> Our oldest will be, well, she's, she's 29. Our youngest will be 10 next week. So we have 19 years between them. We have seven girls and one boy. And awesome. uh, the boy is not the last one. He's number six. So he has two younger <laughs> sisters. Um, why don't we jump right into it, guys? Uh, Adam, as we mentioned before, uh, your presentation was very interesting to an awful lot of folks. And so can you walk us through what maybe two or the three macro themes were that you presented during the webinar? Yeah, sure. You know, I think the the 30,000 foot level is how a friend of mine, Ian Sawyer, summarized a, like a half day session I did in Australia a few years ago, talking about all this different work and kind of summarized it up and saying, well, you're telling me that a bag of fat's not a bag of fat. And I'm like, well, I guess that I could that kind of summarized up my entire half day talk in that one sentence there. And, you know, and I think that's true. You know, as you talked about different fat products that are out there now, Scott, you know, we used to just think of fat as a source of energy and fat was fat wherever you got it from. And I think we're really starting to get a better understand much how we now move from crude protein to talking about individual amino acids and balancing for amino acids. That's really where we're going with fats and, and fatty acids now. So we're going to be talking about uh, what are the fatty acids in a fat supplement, not just what's the price of the fat. And you, and, you know, we have to compare these different things on a like-for-like -like basis. That's the sort of the big picture there. We've really sort of I think, made some advances, us and others, um, trying to understand the role of different fatty acids, different blends of fatty acids. And also now we're also challenging the concept of, of don't feed fat to fresh cats. You know, that has been a, you know, so I think overall we're challenging dogma that's been out there from some of the days when that you talked about earlier, because we're in a different world now with maybe like talking about different fatty acids at different levels in the diet. We're certainly talking about different types of cows as well. So 
Try challenging some of the dogmas there. So looking at the specific fatty acids and blends of fatty acids, when to feed them and which cows respond best to different fatty acids. That's kind of the big picture there. So Adam, you, you, you talked about, you know, you, you made the analogy between uh, going from crude protein to amino acids and going from fat to fatty acids. So do you envision uh, how far in the, how far down the road will we be balancing our diets for individual fatty acid levels as opposed to, you know, crude fat? Yeah, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure we're necessarily there yet. I think some nutritionists could be, and Stacey could talk more about this in a minute. I think that the simplest place where we can do some of this at the moment is through the choice of what type of supplemental fats or fat blends that we're feeding. Um, you know, when we think about basal diets, you know, corn silage, alfalfa, you know, they're going to change to some extent, but they're not that dissimilar, you know, especially in a heavy corn silage based diet, where I think we can have the biggest effect on the overall fatty acid profile of a diet is in what type of fatty acids we're feeding in supplemental fat when we're in, in very enriched, you know, fat sources, you know, is like ruminant inert fat supplements. And also in maybe some of the oil seeds that we're feeding, you know, cotton seed, for example, or if you're distillers versus cotton seed, another, you know, very topical one now is, you know, conventional soybean products versus higher leg soybean products as well. They're the ones places where we can have the biggest impact there. So right now, I know there's a lot of people that are doing it more from the choices that they're making on the fat, fatty acid supplement side or blending different fatty acids. And, and from a, how we can do that in, in models, I think that's the best place we can do that right now, as opposed to, you know, the, the macro bigger part of the diet so much. What, what, do you have any thoughts on that, Stacey? In the last week, we've just introduced to our team a, a option in their ration for, or in their ration balancer where they can go in and, and actually look at the the level of supplemental fatty acids that they're including and and the amounts of C16, C18, O, C181 and oleic acid in order to to more align with what Adam's talking about it through through the results and the research. So it's uh it's pretty exciting. I, mean, I I feel like we're we're moving on the on the research pretty quickly and trying to stay trying to stay ahead of uh, what's going on in the industry just by just by allowing our team to better to better supplement fatty acids to cows without having to think a whole lot about it. They've got the ability to to lock those numbers in and optimize to them and and meet meet the recommendations that Adam's making in the research. So Adam, you've done some really exciting work looking at um, at different uh, fatty acid supplementation regimens uh, throughout lactation. Uh, can you summarize some of your findings there as far as what you're seeing? Sure. So in most or in the vast majority of commercial fat supplements that are out there now, um, the major fatty acids in them would be palmitic acid, C16-0, saturated fatty acid, stearic acid, 18-0, another saturated fatty acid, and then oleic acid, 18-1. Okay, they're the major fatty acids you're going to find in calcium salt to palm oil, uh, saturated mixed prills, and then the palmitic acid enriched prills. Um so they're, they're the major fatty acids in, the, in those. You know, there are some specific unique fatty acid supplements out there that may have some more polyunsaturates, you know, omega-6, omega-3, but not the vast majority of them. And certainly not used in the amounts that you would those other ones that we talked about. So we've uh, spent a lot of time looking at palmitic, stearic, and oleic acid. Our original emphasis was on palmitic and stearic being saturated fatty acids. And... You know, where we we and others saw with palmitic acid was its ability to promote milk fat synthesis. Uh, that was very consistent across all stages of lactation where um, as we increase palmitic acid, and we have some good data on this, as you as the cow eats more palmitic acid, um, as the cow absorbs more palmitic acid, it's a pretty linear increase in 
uh, milk fat yield. Okay. Um, we've also done a lot of work on digestibility. And this is a, a Clay probably remembers more some of my talks back when I was a postdoc at Cornell. This is honestly an area where, you know, we make this is quite a topical thing right now. You know, what I said 10 years ago or 15 years ago, based on the data we have now, is quite different what I say now. But we make these incremental steps, right? Uh, so what I, my thoughts on fatty acid digestibility now are very different to what they were 15 years ago or 10 years ago. Uh, we've, as, as we've learned more and done a lot more work on that. So what we've, what we've observed is that under typical situations now, if we feed more stearic acid uh, in a fatty acid supplement, we see big drop-offs drop in digestibility. To the point, sometimes if you're feeding a stearic-enriched product, um, a cow may not actually um, absorb any more energy than she would in the control diet without the supplemental fat because digestibility is so poor. So we're doing a lot of work now to look at how can we improve fatty acid digestibility because stearic acid is always the major fatty acid that a cow sees um, because of biohydrogenation. So in these higher and higher producing cows with higher intakes, what can we do to improve digestibility? And that brings us to oleic acid, you know, that may other that third fatty acid that's in most products. Uh, we have good data showing that if we feed more oleic acid, typically we can improve fatty acid digestibility. That ties in with some nice work from the 60s and 70s looking at uh, oleic acid as an emulsifier. Um, and then the other really exciting piece now is that when we've looked at different ratios of palmitic um, and oleic acid, they're the two major fatty acids I would focus on right now. At the moment, I don't really see a need of feeding stearic in a fat supplement because of the roles palmitic and oleic can have. What we really see now is that cows at different levels of milk production respond differently to, to different blends of palmitic and oleic acid. That in, you know, mid and late lactation cows, I'd really be looking at a higher palmitic acid uh, product. Um, but then if I'm in uh, very high producing cows in, in peak lactation, I'd probably be looking at a, a more balanced blend of uh, palmitic and oleic and uh, that then then led us more onto onto some of the fresh cow work that we can talk about as well. But that that's kind of where we are now. My focus with uh, within those three fatty acids would be palmitic and oleic, and depending on what type of herd a nutritionist has, what type of uh, you know uh, grouping situations they have, we would maybe look at different blends of those two fatty acids. There's the major fatty acid in supplemental fats. And I, I know a number of people in the industry have tried to sort of take on some of some of those different approaches, which maybe Stacy can can talk to more. So Yeah, I guess I can. I I I have always been a maximum production guy, right? And and it's always been and I mean, maybe to the chagrin of some of my clients, but uh it's always been interesting to try to figure out how do we make the high producing cow more efficient and has our nutrition lined up with her genetic potential. It's if we have the ability for her to get more energy out of the diet, just by changing the fatty acid uh, strategy that that can be huge for our dairy producers in their bottom line. That's why I still think that, uh, and maybe we'll get there. I, I do believe that uh, you've got to go back and do another titration study with very high producing cows and what is the right level of these blends of, uh, of fat supplements to at that 60 at that 60 30 ratio is is one and a half percent of supplemental fatty acid enough or should we be two? Should we be three? Mm hmm. Getting more, get, getting more fat into those high producing cows that are intake challenged. And that could be one of the key things that's holding them back could, could really lean or, and, and create more energy, corrected milk, more, more pounds of milk fat for our dairy producers. So, and, and you see straight away here, Scott and Clay, this is kind of this academia industry relationship here where we can challenge each other on, on both sides of this, I think, and you know, that's even like doing these sort of talks as well and getting feedback. You can get as many, you get the ideas or the challenges and the pushback from some of these sort of areas. And Stacey's right. I mean, we've focused in on one and a half percent supplemental fatty acids for the last three or four years based on a study we did in 2013. Um, 
where now I think we do need to go back and revisit that. And now that we know more about digestibility, as Stacey's alluding to, maybe we, we can and we need to push higher when we've got, you know, 50, 60 kilo cows, you know, 120, 140 pound cows that we could probably push more to. Just to follow up real quick question. Sorry, Clay. Um, you, you, you were saying fatty acids. Does it have to be in the form of fatty acids or can it be in the form of triglycerides? Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, and a, a good academic answer to that is always, well, it depends. So um, if you're talking about saturated fatty acids, palmitic steric, and you're talking about those sort of prills that we often would think about, um, I would always take the free acid product over a triglyceride. Um, you know, if you look at some of the classic data that came out of Ohio State with Jeff Perkins, Maurice Eastridge, and, and others back in the 80s and 90s, where they looked at uh, hydrogenated tallow and hydrogenated palm oil, the digestibility on some of those supplements was frankly terrible, right? Uh, we've done a study more recently where we compared a palmitic acid enriched free acid versus a triglyceride. The triglyceride still had uh, let poorer digestibility, but it was nowhere near the drop that we saw with those hydrogenate products. And again, the big difference there, I think, is stearic acid versus palmitic acid. So in my mind, if you're talking about a palmitic acid enriched product right now, there'd have to be a marked uh, cost benefit to that triglyceride for me to consider feeding a higher level of it to get the same amount of performance. So in general, I'd always get the free acid product. Um, now, calcium salts, by their nature, are always free acid, you know, the free acid bound to the calcium. Um, you know, if you're talking about cottonseed, you know, soy-based products, they're going to be in a triglyceride there, but that, that's kind of a different beast then. But with those saturated products, I'd always take the free acid if I could. So, so Adam, when you're supplementing oleic acid, how much of that is leaving the rumen as oleic acid versus steric yeah so that's that's a, that's another good question um i would say probably not a huge amount more than is than than what's leaving if you just put the oil in in the room so let me explain that a bit more so most of the whenever we're in any of our studies where we're looking at these palmitic oleic blends as stacy was alluding to uh most of that oleic acid is coming from calcium salts of palm fatty acids Okay, so most of that oleic acid is in that calcium cell. There's a misperception that that term rumen protection really means that all of that fatty acid is protecting from the rumen. You know, actually, Don Palmquist meant that term rumen inert, rumen protected, as the other way around, where the calcium cell protected the bugs from the fatty acid. And people have kind of, that's got flipped over in the last few years. Um, now, there's, there's some slower release of that. So I think there is typically some slightly less biohydrogenation of that oleic acid in a salt than if I just threw the palm oil in the rumen. Certainly you have less of a negative effect, I think, on feed intake, risk of milk fat depression. But still a proportion of that is going to be biohydrogenated. Um, if I look at some of Tom Jenkins' work, I think it was Jenkins and Bridges back in the day uh, when they looked at some of those rates and we need to revisit that, I'd be looking at anywhere from 40 to 70 percent of the oleic in a salt is biohydrogenated all right so if you fed an extra 100 grams of oleic acid in a in a salt per day you might be getting anywhere from 20 to 60 grams of that uh reaching this small intestine and we know from some of our abomasal infusion work that those lower levels of oleic reaching the small intestine can still have some uh biological effects you know and again we're we're thinking a lot of this now a lot more than just energy, right? So, you know, those that like that was biohydrogenate still leaving the room and as steric, some of it. So it still has potential for energy, assuming it's absorbed. But we're, we're thinking a lot more of these uh, bioactive effects of these fatty acids. And I think anywhere from that 20 to 60 grams of oleic can have some benefits on uh, fatty acid digestibility, certainly. And we're starting to think some benefits on energy, nutrient differences on nutrient partitioning. And the one we're really excited about, which maybe we'll talk more in a while, is on adipose metabolism in transition cows as well. So if you're feeding, uh, you may, had mentioned earlier, feeding, you know, high oleic uh, acid soybeans, for instance, to, is, it, is the same thing true there? Is most of that being hydrogenated in the rumen? Yes, I'd say it would be. Yeah, um, you know, if you're feeding roasted soybeans or a high oleic bean, 
Um, the level of biohydrogenation there would be pretty extensive, you know, 70, 80%. But remember, biohydrogenation is never 100% complete. So if you feed more, you're going to get some more reaching the small intestine. You probably have to be more careful at some of those higher levels of those feedings um, with making sure you don't, you know, milk fat depression risk. But I, I get asked a lot about higher leg beans more and more now. Um, but what I would always say is pound for pound, a higher leg bean, it was going to be a lot safer feeding than a high linoleic bean. OK, and Stacy has a lot more experience on this than I do with the higher leg beans. Yeah, what have you seen, Stacy? We have three herds that I know of that are either growing and roasting high oleic beans on farm and then processing them and using them, or they're buying them from a neighbor and roasting them and processing and using them. Uh, diet inclusion rates of 10 to 17, 18% of dry matter um pretty high feeding rates and we've seen no negative impact on milk fat percent if anything we've seen some pretty big improvements in energy corrected milk yield uh the one herd in particular seven eight ten pounds more energy corrected milk yield uh but but feeding eight to ten pounds per head per day of of high oleic soybeans wow it's What's total fat in those diets, Stacy? Close or fatty acids supplementations closing in, or fatty total fatty acids is closing in on six and a half seven percent. Yeah, so that's an interesting. And is that about the limit you go to? Do I? Is that the limit you'll go to typically? Uh, the dairy producer wants us to go higher because he's he's looking at decreasing purchase feed costs and and the improvement that he's seen in production on his cows. Now, the concern we have and and we need to do a better job at it is what happens in late lactation cows. Are we causing cows to get overly obese because of that extra oleic acid? But but we have not seen a negative impact on on milk fat that we would typically expect when we're feeding a high level of oleic. So uh, on milk fat percent, I mean, that herd right now is running low to mid 80s on 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 milk production with a four three milk fat so it's pretty exciting right and they're, they're all they're all holstings they're all black and white cows you know and that's the the that maybe we're getting slightly off topic here but that's the the thing as stacy says about where his dietary fat levels are is for a long time now we feared fat levels in diets for a milk fat depression risk right but if you get that diet set up correct that rumen can handle those levels of fatty acids. It depends often on what the fatty acids are, right? Linoleic. But if he's feeding that same level of a conventional bean, I'm not sure he'd be doing quite so well. Um, and I think the legs having some benefits effects and not having the linoleic is having some effects as well. But the other key component there is that you have to have everything else right set in that rumen um, from the diet. So, the, you know, you got enough effective fiber and you have to, um, if you get that, that, working well you can feed higher levels of fat um and maintain really good milk fats right and drive more milk fat i i've gone back and used that rico study a lot adam to uh to show dairy producers why we should be feeding higher fat levels in their diets yeah. because if we can avoid biohydrogenation if we the more fat we put into the diet the more milk fat she's going to produce, whether that's coming from cottonseed, whether that's coming from uh, high oleic soybeans, whether that's coming from fatty acid supplementation, the more fat we get into her diet, the more milk fat yield she's going to have. And, and economically, until the last few months, milk fat had, was, was a really bright story in the industry for the last five, six years. So. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. <clears throat> Stacey, kind of a follow-up question before you were talking about that you were looking to maybe decrease the fat a little bit in those late lactation cows. Is, is there any, and maybe, I don't maybe Adam can chime on this as well, but do you, do you look at um, uh, altering the fatty acid uh, composition uh, of, of the fat in the diet dependent on stage of lactation, whether that's pre-fresh, fresh cows, high producers, mid-lactation, like the late lactation, does, does the fatty acid profile of the fat that you feed change? 
Well, or yeah, the, I, the the research would say it does, and and we're the way we're trying to target it is transition cows. You know, just your first two to three weeks in the fresh period being that higher oleic, uh, that higher oleic supplementation, and then. It and then we have to ask the it depends questions, right? Because what's a high group on a dairy farm? Is it is it everybody that's not a fresh cow, or is it is it a true high group? And and we see on a lot of these dairies, you know, today where the high group is make is a true high group. They're making 110, 115, 130 pounds of milk, and the research would tell us we want the higher oleic in those diets. Um, once we move into the later lactation, typically we're seeing the supplementation levels come down from where we've been in the, where we've seen in the research. You know, we're not supplementing one and a half percent. We're supplementing more like one percent, but we're moving toward higher palm in those diets, still keeping some away again from trying to take advantage of the improvement in fatty acid digestibility, but we're really tailing that off in those later like in those later lactation cows. The challenge becomes for a for a dairy nutritionist is they they really need to understand what the definition of a high group on a dairy farm is if they're going to push a lot of oleic acid at cows because you don't want to you don't want to get cows obese at the end of lactation and yes energy corrected milk fat corrected milk will be based on the research would be the same if we're if no matter what the level of oleic acid we're putting in, but dairy nutritionists are still judged by producers on percent milk fat. So, and oleic can have an impact on the percent. So got to be careful there too and understand what the groups that we're targeting are. Where some of that work has come from, uh, give Stacy a lot of credit here, um, Marin Weston works with Stacey at Vitaplus now, and she did a lot of some of this work with her masters, just looking across wide ranges of milk production and doing different blends. And you were, we we heard Stacey talk about the 60-30 blend, 60% palmitic, 30 elect, where, you know, very high producing cows post-peak do, do perform better on that versus a sort of 80% palmitic acid. But then as soon as you get below maybe 90 pounds of milk, 95 pounds of milk, they'll do better on that higher palmitic. Certainly in post-peak cows, when we feed them more elect, um, we will see high, uh, greater rates of body weight gain. So as Stacey said, you need to avoid, you need to sort of be careful with that as we move through. And that's where I think grouping strategies really come into play here. But then that's what led us then to sort of look at using some of those high, higher elect blends in those transition in those fresh cows, which is really paying off and really showing great interest now. So... Adam, metabolically, why do the why do those cows perform differently uh, as they go from higher production to lower production uh, related to fatty acid profile? That's a that's a that's a good question, and we have a few ideas on that. And uh, what we're starting to understand with a layer acid, you know, often when we think about bioactive fatty acids in in human nutrition, animal nutrition, you often hear about omega-6, omega-3 fatty acids, right? Everyone, everyone's heard of omega-3 fatty acids. Uh, we're starting to understand more now that oleic acid, which is an omega-9 fatty acid, oleic acid can have as many or some of the sort of biological effects that these omega-6, omega-3 have in, in, in different ways. So as a, as a, um, as a key uh, bioactive in terms of switching genes on or impacting uh, different metabolic pathways, oleic acid can have some real uh, potent biological effects. Uh, so what we've seen is um, that oleic acid can have direct impacts on adipose tissue, especially in, in some of our work with, with fresh cows. Um, can actually increase rates of lipogenesis, decrease rates of lipolysis, which is great in a fresh cow, right? Um, and it looks like oleic acid can have some um, impact on uh, insulin sensitivity of adipose tissue. Again, something that, that can be potentially be very important there. And so that also points to why we may see higher rates of body weight gain in, in cows fed oleic acid. There is data in rodent models and in uh, non-bovine models showing that oleic acid may actually have some direct effects on insulin 
uh, secretion from the pancreas. Typically, when we feed high oleic acid blends, we see a higher circulating insulin levels as well, which again ties in with the body weight story, right? Uh, lower NIFA levels that we see in fresh cows. On the palmitic acid side, um, as I said earlier on, we know palmitic acid stimulates more milk fat production. Um, the mammary gland typically starts triglyceride synthesis. Milk fat's basically triglycerides, right? 95, 98% triglycerides. The more palmitic acid is available to the mammary gland, the more triglycerides she's producing, so the more milk fat we get, as long as we have the other fatty acids that come to that part. Uh, so Joe McFadden has a very interesting story around palmitic acid, um, around this, the ceramide story, and, and Joe was on the other uh, pub meeting that we had as a follow-up to the Discover conference, and he, he has a, a very interesting talk at the Discover conference, and some of that's around his ceramide story. Where And he's taken data from some of our work and some of his own studies at Virginia Tech, not Virginia Tech, West Virginia, sorry, um, showing that when you feed more palmitic, you get some more uh, ceramide synthesis that can maybe have some insulin uh, sensitizing effects and may help post-peak cows maintain more nutrients uh, going to the mammary gland still. So there, there's a number of lines of evidence here that kind of fit into fit into some of those type of things. So, so you mentioned before, um, Adam, that um, you've changed your mind about fatty acid feeding over the last 10 years. As you look forward, what's it look like in the next 10 years uh, from a, from an academic perspective? And then I'm going to come back and ask the same as Stacy. What does he see happening uh, from a, from a practical perspective? That's good. I think uh, to answer that fully, I'm just going to mention a bit about some of the fresh cow work that, um, that we've been doing uh, that Stacy alluded to um, where, you know, the, the old concept was don't feed supplemental fat to fresh cows because they're already mobilizing a lot of body fat. So why have, why feed more fat when there's already so many fatty acids in circulation? And I've never really liked that idea because fatty acids that get absorbed in the, from the diet in the small intestine, they're kind of very, very much in a different pool than if uh, fatty acids are being mobilized. Uh, we did some of our early work with palmitic acid-enriched supplements with fresh cows, from calving first three weeks of lactation, saw great performance, like four and a half kilos more energy correct to milk, but they did lose more body weight, which, you know, about 25 kilos more body weight, which is consistent across a number of studies, which I think is manageable, but if you're aware of it, but it's maybe not, not ideal. So that's where that, along with some of our work that, with oleic acid that we've talked about around body weight gain, ad, in adipose metabolism, we then started coming back with uh, some of these higher oleic acids. So this is kind of where we, you know, 60% palmitic, 30% oleic. And we have a couple of good studies now showing that we can get as good levels of milk production, you know, another four, five kilos more energy corrected milk in a fresh cow with these palmitic oleic blends without losing additional body weight and we've seen that in the fresh and then we saw that had a, a really great carryover effect and we just had a study this last summer adsa uh, where if we carried on with that blend in that peak period so from week three to week 10 of lactation we got another incremental increase again in milk production um, and that kind of ties in with that very high group of cows that stacy was talking about um, so I'm very interested in that palmitic and oleic in the fresh cow going forward. Uh, also interested in oleic acid maybe in the close-up diet as well. Um, so really interested in that oleic acid story, uh, particularly related to adipose tissue metabolism. Andreas Contreras, a, a good friend and co colleague of mine here in our vet school here, um, expert on adipose metabolism. We're starting to do a lot of work in that area together. I think that's a real... Um, going to be a real important area going forward, better understanding these sort of major fatty acids in the diet, particularly palmitic and oleic. Another big thing in the future is we need to find ways to improve fatty acid digestibility. Stacey mentioned earlier, you know, if we feed more oleic acid, we should be able to improve digestibility. But I think there's more that we can do in that area. There's, you know, classic data, you know, more fatty acids a cow consumes lower total fatty acid digestibility a lot of that's driven by drop-offs with stearic acid uh, so maybe there's limitations in emulsification capacity in the small intestine um, and we're doing some work on that and i think we need to do more work on that in the future and i think if we can help improve overall fatty acid absorption going forward that's a big way you know we can improve nutrient efficiency you know and milk production um 
you know, a big take home from that recent ADSA Discover conference around the transition cow is animal health, you know, immune status, you know, health in general. Um, big picture, role of oleic acid in, in, in the immune system, I think, is important. But I think omega-3 is going to be a big thing, you know, longer term as well. There's a lot of interest around reproduction right now. Um, but if we look at some of the human data, I think omega, omega-6, omega-3 fatty acids and the immune function is going to be a big one in the future. You know, challenge with ruminants is how do we get them past the rumen because of biohydrogenation. Um, particularly, I'm particularly interested longer term now in omega threes, and you know, and particularly uh, the EPA, DHA, the sort of the fish oil omega threes. Um, they're the ones that I think that have the real potent biological effect. So, you know, longer term, I think they're big, big areas of that. So, you know, they're big things going forward. Um, obviously, let's not forget the um, the big take home for any dairy is how do we maximize and promote yields of milk fat and yields of milk protein? You know, they're the two things that drive milk check, right? Um, of course, we have to have all these other things that come with it. So we're often thinking and, and uh, have a, a, a student with VitaPlus right now that's really focusing on how can we maybe uh, do a better job at promoting milk protein yield around with fatty acid supplementation. How does amino acid and fatty acid supplementation uh, tie together here? How do we balance energy and amino acids or nutrients and amino acids here? Uh, so I think that's still a big part of this going forward because ultimately, you know, yield of fat, yield of protein is is what we need to focus on uh, throughout that whole lactation as well. So Adam, uh Back to the oleic acid story for a minute. And the, the, okay. uh, when you're supplementing these earlier lactation cows and um, you're minimizing body weight loss, is that having any positive impacts on reproduction? <clears throat> I would I would assume so. We've not measured that in any of our studies. Uh, our, our research herd at MSU isn't really geared up for any of that. And uh, we have a... <laughs> A number of researchers, very active dairy nutritionists here that um, we're not able typically to keep those cows going going through the whole lactation. But if we are um, improving milk production without decreasing, um, increasing body weight loss, um, you one would assume that we're having some benefit. You know, we're certainly not having a negative effect there, right? Um, you know, a key in some of these things is getting these cows back into positive energy balance, you know, in terms of priority of nutrient use, lactation versus reproductive system. Um, so I think anything we can can, can do to uh, minimize excessive body weight loss, you know, all mammals to some extent uh, mobilize bod, um, body reserves in early lactation, right? You know, the cow's not unique in that, and it's certainly not an extreme example of that. Um, and it's all about balance. So if we can balance that up, maintain a, a healthy cow, um, that I don't think we're certainly having any negative effects there. Um, often, you know, sort of bigger picture here. Often we're still fit, fit, we're still focused on like a free, free, three sixty-five calving cycle. And you know, as we get higher and higher producing cows, maybe that isn't what we're focused on, especially if you're not in a grazing situation, right? So, right. Stacey, how about you? What do you see from uh, what, what's going to change over the next 10 years from a practical perspective in feeding fats to dairy cattle? Yeah, so the first question you asked was, well, where have you come from, right? So 10 years ago, I was pretty anti-fat just because of the whole biohydrogenation story and I and supplemental fats are expensive. With the change in milk fat pricing the last five to six years, my story has really changed on that. Where do we go from there? Um, I, I really think that the emulsifier thing is huge. Can we, can we do something? Is it, is it going to be all about oleic or is something going to happen with the emulsifier uh, side of things where we can improve fatty acid digestibility? continue to, to allow our dairy producers and their cows to be more efficient with the, with the feed we're giving them. The other thing, I guess I was sitting here jotting down some notes when Adam was talking, you know, is there protection technologies that would allow us to take specific fatty acids, use them like a nutraceutical 
um, deliver them to the small intestine and target a specific stage of lactation to benefit immunity, to benefit somatic cell count, to benefit uh, reproductive performance and, and do it in a better way than we're doing it today where we, where it's either a saturate that's all prills or a unsaturate with some level of protection. Is there the ability to do a better job with protection technology to deliver, to deliver specific fatty acids downstream? And I guess, you know, the omega threes, the omega sixes is a big one. Uh, definitely, you know, you see, uh, some companies that are promoting milk with DHA in them and, and they're adding algal oil to get that done. Can we make the cow do that if we can protect the, if we can protect that fat and move it downstream? And then the other one that's big, which is, I mean, Adam, you might have to correct me here, which is where Dale Bauman started his uh, whole interest in this is what about CLA and can we, is there a way that we can do a better job protecting CLA and improve CLA concentration of milk with, without all the negative effects that adding CLA to a ruminant diet has today? But I guess from my point, it would be adding, adding more value to, to the product coming from the cow, right? Is it CLA that's a very uh, good anti-carcinogen? Is it an omega that's, that's going to purport, improve brain health and, and, uh, overall immunity. Is it, is it some other nutraceutical that we could deliver through the fat, the milk fat in the milk? And I just think that's fascinating where, where we could go as a dairy industry if we're able to do that. Yeah. I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of exciting things you're, you're saying there. I, um, I t- totally agree on, you know, bioactive nutraceuticals, um, in the feeds, um, May, even more so maybe for the cow herself, um, but also for, you know, manipulated milk. I think there's a lot of opportunities for niche products, um, you know, high omega-3 milk, high CLA milk. The CLA story kind of died off. You know, there's huge amount of exciting data from rodent models, in vitro models with CLA, you know, not cis 9 translem CLA in particular for Senec acid, the precursor of it coming from biohydrogenation. And and enriched milks and their impact in rodent models. Where that became really hard was translating that to human data, to hum, human results. Because, um, you know, in, in a, simply put, when you're looking at something that that has um, disease prevention and health maintenance, it's very hard to show long-term human benefits of something like that versus something that could cure a disease you know, where you can go in and treat something. So the, the human data kind of didn't back up the rodent model there just because of how hard it was, you know, to follow people, you know, the, those nurses' health studies, the framing um, studies, like that, you know, to follow people for 50 years and try and look at milk intake and milk fat intake and, and then try and show that. Um, where, where I – so – we talk about our 10 year, 20 year history, you know, I was quite actively involved in a lot at that area where I see milk and particularly milk fat going forward. Now is let's promote the health benefits of milk fat in general. And CLA is a fantastic component of milk fat. Um, and get a challenge, the dogma around saturated fat and, you know, but butter is making an inroads back again now. Right. And so, I think like <clears throat> some of those areas as well. And, but I certainly agree. There are some <clears throat> excuse me, opportunities for some of these niche products there, but where I don't like it is if someone starts to say, well, my milk's better than your milk. Let's talk about milk and milk fat as a healthy component of the diet in general. Um, but hundred percent agree. There's a great lot of opportunity for these bioactive and nutraceuticals, um, maybe transferring it to milk, but also I think for the cow herself. Um, I think that's a really exciting area. And fatty acids are, you know, offer a lot of opportunities from some of that. And also fatty acids can maybe also offer opportunities as a delivery mechanism for some of those nutraceuticals as well. This is pretty fascinating. You got me to thinking here. So what about, um, what about transfer to the calf through mm-hmm. colostrum? Yeah, it could be through colostrum or it could be in utero. Yeah. Right? So, you know, the whole, you know, programming type 
type deal. And there's a lot of interesting uh, data in some in some of those areas now. Um, you know, I've not actively done any of those studies ourselves, but as we start to maybe do some more dry cow work, maybe around oleic acid or other fatty acids, what impacts does that have on the calf herself? Now, it might not be through colostrum either. It could be through a milk replacer as well, right? Right. Um, right. And Mike Vanderhaar just published some recent studies from here at Michigan State recently where they were looking at giving a single dose of fish oil in the first colostrum the calf received as, a, as an additive and looking at potentially some of the health benefits going forward. So I think there's a lot of opportunities there. But this whole, you know, in utero transfer of... of um, you know, health status of calves um, or long-term effects on, on calves, you know, programming, you know, Barker hypothesis would be the kind of the classic term people would use for that. I think that's a real fascinating area in the future. Um, if I remember, I think um, Jeff Dole's had some data out of Florida around heat stress. Mm-hmm. If, I, if I recall, in, you know, cow, calves that were born during times of heat stress versus not in heat stress, what was their subsequent milk production when they hit the hit the dairy herd? You know, so across species, there's a lot of data on fetal programming um, work, um, which I think is really exciting. And and the similar, there's that data about that key fresh period of a dairy cow. And we have some data with fatty acid feeding. You know, if you feed fatty acids the first three weeks of um, our palmitic palmitic blends, that first three weeks, we could and then you stop feeding them after three weeks. Another seven weeks later, we still saw about a four kilo benefit on milk production. So there's programming of the cow herself, maybe the, the mammary gland or, or other tissues in that early period. Barry Bradford has work, you know, where he gave um, uh, specific anti-inflammatories, if I recall, you know, once or twice straight after calving, having some long-term uh, lactation benefits. So I think that whole programming uh, piece uh, play is a, going to be a big area going forward not not just in dairy nutrition either but you know human health human nutrition as well. right so dr zimmerman uh, if you don't have any uh, additional uh, questions uh, perhaps we'll, we'll move into some audience questions just a couple here real quick uh, angelo's asking what about polyunsaturated fatty acids and ndf digestibility uh, i can have a stab at that first of all so the classic dogma has been uh, when you feed fat, you drop fiber digestibility, right? Um, that's sort of coming from work in the 80s and 90s. Uh, Lou Armentano had a good meta-analysis on that a few years ago that kind of challenged that. Um, under sort of fairly normal levels of feeding of like typical commercial fats, you don't see those drop-offs. And the big exciting one for us has been whenever – we feed a palmitic enriched supplement you know and 60 70 80 percent palmitic acid we consistently see improvements in ndf digestibility uh you know probably three three even four percentage units improvements in ndf digestibility and you know in some of our studies that helps drive those energy corrected milk production improvements we see it's not all just on milk fat right um if we improve ndf digestibility uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids uh, probably have more likely to have a negative effect on NDF digestibility. You know, um, if you look at some of the classic work on uh, biohydrogenation and uh, what I just simply call toxicity of fatty acids, uh, linoleic acid, for example, different bacterial species are more or less sensitive uh, to that in an in vitro system. And the more sensitive fatty acid, uh, but, sorry, the more sensitive bacteria to linoleic acid are often those that do fiber digestion, so the butifibrio species. So often if you feed uh, available linoleic acid in the rumen, you probably are getting some shifts in bacterial populations, and which would result in uh, less, uh, less fiber digestibility. So you know, that's where you have to be careful maybe with those more polyunsaturated fatty acids um, or feeding higher levels of uh, rumen available on saturated fat you know honestly a, a good example is you can feed more linoleic acid from cottonseed than you can from distillers grains before you see negative effects right and that that is comes down to how available uh, those fatty acids are in the rumen how quickly the bacteria have to de- um, biohydrogenate them and i think that's a good example the other example was our discussion we had earlier with uh, conventional soybeans versus high lake beans you know 
oleic acid is. I think we, you know, if you simply think it has less unsaturated double bonds in, it's less less toxic to rumen bacteria. All right, Stacy. Uh, Michael would like to know um, how quickly do you see a response in milk fat after starting to feed um, palmitic acid? I would say you're going to see a measurable response within four to five days. I don't know that anybody or that anybody's paying that close of attention to their dairy herds to to try that, but um, I, I I'm pretty confident we're going to pick it up pretty quickly. It, it, you're 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 not changing if you're if you're feeding a high palm like the an 80 10 ratio you're not doing a lot to the diet to change rumen fermentation rights you just come on top of your current diet with with a high palm product you should see the you should see the milk rapid fat response in four to five days when will it fully get there i don't know how long it takes to to fully uh to see the full response. And I don't know that, I don't necessarily know that the, uh, that any of the research would point us to that, but I mean, it, it definitely seeing the responses in week one or two, uh, in the, in the transition cow work. So I, I, I think you're going to see the, see the milk fat yield response pretty quickly. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So uh, kind of this might be a little bit of out of your wheelhouse, gentlemen, but, um, you know, we've talked a lot about palmitic acid, palmitic acid for the most part uh, that, that goes into dairy diets comes from uh, palm oil, correct? And in Europe, a lot of Europeans are, are, are not using palm oil for sustainability reasons. And so I guess my question would be, what do you see as perhaps uh, another alternative source for palmitic acid if it's not palm oil? Uh, yeah, that's a question I often get asked. Um, and I, I visited uh, Malaysia once and saw some of the, the, these palm operations. Um, there are other uh, vegetable oils that are, you know, richer sources of, of uh, palmitic acid. Um, nearly all vegetable oils contain, a pre, you know, 20, 40 percent uh, palmitic acid. Um, so, you know, these palmitic enriched products are out there now are only 80%, 90% palmitic acid because of some degree of fractionation, right? In palm oil, you know, most of the unsaturates go into food or cosmetics and the palmitic acid is, is left is left over for, for other purposes. So there are certainly other vegetable oils available that can be rich sources of palmitic acid. The sustainability is, you know, questions around um, palm oil production are often, you know, some extent similar discussions and questions we have around sustainability of the dairy industry. Right. Um, so that's an interesting discussion and, you know, there are a lot of efforts. There are a number of different palm oil sustainability certification programs. Uh, and some of that clearly, you know, deforestation has been an issue, I think in the past, you know, managing that. Uh, one thing I would say that really impressed me, uh, when I've started to learn more about the palm industry is that when you have a adult palm tree growing, they're cropping that palm tree three or four times a year. And that same tree is growing, um, is, is, is giving fruit for 20, 30 years, I believe. Uh, so it's not like, you know, some of the other oils where, you know, you're turning that land over every single year. Uh, so, you know, the similar to the dairy industry, there's some of the concerns with sustainability, of the dairy industry and the palm industry, are they are they all fair accusations that, that are thrown uh, thrown at our industries? Um, I think they're and you know the same as we're we're making great strides and great efforts. You know I know the palm industry is in terms of you know genetic selection of you know um, longer long viable palm palm trees. You know different uses. How can we get more from the same land without having to take more land? Um, it's the same questions that we have for the dairy industry as well, but it, clearly it's a concern, right? And there's a lot of emotional tugs with that as the same as it is with the dairy industry as well, right? But um, I, I think it can be a very sustainable industry similar to, our, to, to the dairy industry as well. So, Adam, as we wrap it up here, can you give us a couple items that uh, you can share with with the audience that they can, they can take home tomorrow and, and begin uh, using with their dairies? Yes. Uh, you know, I think... Number one is next time someone's trying to sell you a new fat product and there seems to be something different coming out every day, right? 
Remember, bag of fat's not a bag of fat. Number one question is, what's the fatty acid profile of it? Hands down, fatty acid profile of any supplemental fat is going to be the first and the most important thing that's going to determine what type of response you're going to have to it. Um, right now, if I was having uh, advising my dad, you know, what to feed if we were still milking cows, I'd be looking at different blends of palmitic and oleic acid in my in my fat in my fatty acid blend part of my diet. Okay, and that's really what we're talking about here. So in that fresh and very high cow, I'd be looking at uh, uh, you know. 60-30 kind of ratio of palmitic and oleic acid. You can get that from single products that are out there now, or you can do it with blends of, of uh, commercial products. And then as, as we progress, I'd be looking at um, a higher palmitic acid to make, get more milk fat yield, maybe minimize body weight. Yeah, it's kind of where we are right now. Um, as Stacy said, I think I'd also be looking at <clears throat> where can I push maybe some of my other other um, efforts in terms of uh, fatty acids in the diet. Remember, fatty acids aren't just coming from these uh, ruminant fats. You know, the the higher like beans really interest me. Cotton seed really interests me as well. Um, and then, how do we balance the whole diet around that? But for me, bag of fat's not a bag of fat. Fatty acid profile. When you work out what your nutritional strategy is for your client or, or on your particular farm, what type of grouping strategy you have, what abilities you have to have different diets on the farm, that then opens up to um, what type of uh, program you're going to have. And then that's when you talk to people like Stacy, who are, I think, on the cutting edge here in the industry uh, on how best to implement what you can do on your own farm. Yeah, great advice. Stacy. what kinds of words of wisdom would you impart to uh, your colleagues in the industry? You're going to have to have conversations with your dairy producers and understand their abilities to add fat on farm. Um, I, I would suggest everybody get some level of calcium salts into their, into their rations to provide, to provide oleic acid just from the improvement in fatty acid digestibility. Um, start looking at the blends, especially in those fresh cows and those high producing cows. And then you've got to get creative because what's the feeding rate of the, the mix you're taking to the farm? How much fat can you put in the mix? Is the producer willing to handle multiple bags on farm? There are some ratio products out there that, that are on the market and, and meeting, getting really close to the, to the blend, to the levels that Adam's talking about in the blends, you're going to pay a premium if you use a single source product. So blending, taking a palm product, taking a, a calcium salt, blending them together uh, to, to meet the ratios that, that have been shown to be effective in research is going to be more cost effective than going out and buying one of the blends on the market. But going and buying one, of, or one or two of the blends on the market and using them decreases uh, chances for error by the feeder, decreases uh, the confusion and how to get it done. and. And when we talk blends of, when we talk a, rate, a fatty acid ratio of 60-30, that's not a, that's not 60% of one bag and 30% of the other. It's, it's what's the fatty acid profile of those two, those two feeds and, and how, what's the ratio of those feedstuffs that the producer has to add. And you, you have to understand all of that to make it effective having conversations with producers to understand their on-farm capabilities and starting from there where we've got several farms where we put a small amount of palm or a small amount of calcium salts in the mix going to the farm and that they're just adding one bag of fat on the farm. And as our dairies have gotten bigger and they're buying more ingredients on the farm, feeding rates of mixes have gotten lower and, mixing fat into a, into a mineral premix or a protein mineral mix, you're limited just on how much you can add. So you have to get creative on, on how you supplement these fats on the farm. But at the All end right. of the day, there's, there's probably a lot of opportunity for improving energy corrected milk on our dairies that we've left on the table as the whole industry moved anti-fat in the 2000s and has now come back. There, we're, there's opportunity to, to improve incomes for our farm or, or our dairy producers uh, by, by feeding more fat. I'd agree. And I think, you know, as I said, we're, you know, we've been talking about amino acids for ever since I've been over here in the U.S. now, we're really just kind of scratching the surface on the fatty acid side now, but there's a, a lot of opportunities to try and learn more on the fatty acid side. 
and the amino acid side and how do we balance those nutrients to maximize fat and protein you know as, as fat and protein are coming back more on par now you know to what it was more historically you know we need to be looking at both both of those as well but uh, uh, i think we've learned a lot but there's a lot of opportunities in the future as well and that's where these type of discussions help stimulate ideas across the whole uh, playing field here i think and for, for, for all of us as well so appreciate the discussion no, I definitely agree. And gentlemen, I want to thank you both for uh, joining us here at the exchange tonight. Uh, I've loved the insights. I've loved the engaging conversation. And uh, Adam, just, you know, you, you're, you're becoming a fixture here. Do you do you anticipate you'll be here next week with us? Well, yeah, I, I enjoy doing these, so happy to come back whenever. Especially if there's a gin and tonic involved here, right? So. <laughs> yeah, the bar's always open here at the at the exchange. Well, folks, we sincerely appreciate you stopping by to spend some time with us once again here at the exchange. If you like what you heard, please remember to drop us a five star on your way out and subscribe to the alerts so that you'll get uh, alerts to future podcasts. We hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange, where it's always happy hour. The conversation is sometimes saucy, and you're always among friends.